about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, And they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Sing to the Lord a new song. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, But you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me. So I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. Good evening, my name's Timothy, if I haven't met you. The second reading this evening comes from John's Gospel, chapter 8. It's in your handout and thankfully it's also present in the Bible. So uh, I'll give you a moment and we'll jump in. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my Father and you dishonour me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died And so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him 
and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's good to be with you again. Some new faces, so for your sake, uh, my name's Andrew. I'm senior minister here, and uh, we are working our way through the section of the Old Testament book of Isaiah that begins at chapter 40. It's a part of the Bible in which we hear God's words of comfort to the people of Israel at a really dark time in their history. And what we've also been seeing is that it, it, it shows us the good news of Jesus afresh, as if we have traveled around the other side of a mountain we're used to seeing from one side and we see it from a new angle and, and we can appreciate it afresh. Today we turn to quite a long section. So if you got on the way in, you've got another um, piece of paper which has a sermon outline and the whole passage uh, before us uh, in um, four columns. Um, and... Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing there, but you may want to refer to that. Uh, but Because here in this section, which really does have a kind of common theme, a view opens up that is truly splendid. For what we get here is a new vantage point on what the grace of God really means. As I said, rather than reading it through in order, it's, it's probably too long for that, although I do hope you might do that sometime. What I want to do is to try and pull together what we see here under three headings, three kind of points. The three points are these. First, we see that we cannot stop God from being the gracious God. We cannot stop him. Second, we see that we cannot control the grace of God. And finally, we see that what we are called to do is basically just to stand and to watch and to bear witness joyfully to this work of God that is out of our hands. So that's where we're going. One, two, three. So the, per the first thing this passage shows us, and this one uh, will take us the longest, just fair warning, uh, is that we cannot stop God being the gracious God. We pick up Isaiah at chapter 42, verse 18. And the first thing we see there is a description of Israel that is very unflattering. Um, you might recall back in chapter 41, if you don't recall, it's totally fine. Israel is called God's servant in verse 8 of chapter 41. And then in the passage we read last week, we see this sermon described in, in kind of amazing terms. The servant of the Lord is going to open the eyes of the blind and be a light to the nations. But now we discover that the servant is basically a wreck. Look from verse 18. Hear you deaf, look you blind and see, who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send, who is blind like the one in covenant with me? 
blind like the servant of the Lord. God's chosen people were supposed to be a light to the nations, opening the eyes of the blind, but instead they have become blind themselves. They've ended up just as much a mess as anyone else. As the passage continues, things only get worse. We hear about, in verse 22, just before this, we hear about how Israel has been reduced to nothing. They've become, Isaiah says, mere loot of great powers. But then shockingly, we hear that all of this is God's doing. Verse 23, which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Who was it? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. And yet, and here's the, here's the twist of the knife. Even that didn't change anything. Israel remained stubbornly, willfully blind. Verse 25, so he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. I'm sure you don't like hearing words like this. I don't think Isaiah enjoyed saying them either. What we're seeing here is an utterly broken relationship where on Israel's side there has come a hardness, a bitterness, a refusal to see things differently, to learn or grow or turn around. Through Isaiah's words, we see God standing, imploring Israel to open her eyes, see what she's doing to herself, come to her senses, but all he gets back, all he gets back is stubbornness and incomprehension. You know, I hope you don't recognize this pattern from your own relationships. With us, of course, it's never, it's never fully one-sided. None of us is ever completely blame-free in a breakdown of relationships. Yet, this pattern tragically does appear. A hardness and resistance can creep over someone that seems to only get more and more impenetrable, impenetrable more unbreakable, unchangeable. And no amount of reasoning or pleading or even anger can get through. I hope you don't know that pattern. But if you do, will you see also that God knows it too? It's very hard to come back, though, from this kind of breakdown in a relationship. This kind of deeply stuck refusal by one side to see the other. But that is exactly what happens in our passage. Suddenly, in chapter 43, things change. Change just explodes into view with these incredible words, but now. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Suddenly we have images of renewal and healing and intimacy and protection. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God. 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The Lord refuses to let Israel's sin, Israel's rebellion, recalcitrance, and self-destruction, he refuses to let it be decisive. He refuses to let them destroy themselves, and instead he just acts on his own, at his own initiative, to redeem. He wins them back. He snatches them from the ends of the earth. The same pattern actually happens again in the second half of our passage, jumping ahead a bit. Uh, We'll jump over some of the verses we read before. In verses 14 to 21 of chapter 43, God speaks of how he's going to do a new thing. He's going to do something even greater than the Exodus, which is, if you know the story of the Old Testament, right, the Exodus is the great event of salvation, and God says, forget that. This is going to beat it by a long shot. And yet, is this because Israel has finally changed? Finally become the people they were meant to be? No, not at all. Verse 22, yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. These are the the things Israel was supposed to do in in, in their kind of ritual law. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. The irony is meant to be sharp. What has Israel offered God? Not sacrifices. Not worship and praise. Instead, they've offered him offenses. God hasn't burdened them or wearied them. He hasn't made unreasonable demands on them, but they have burdened and wearied him. Again and again, his generosity has been met with indifference and arrogance. Skip down to verse 26 for a moment. God says, review the past for me. He says, look back, have a look back at the history of our relationship for a second. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Find some evidence that this is not the way I'm describing it. Verse 27, your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me, so I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. This relationship has been stuffed up from the beginning. It's been broken from day one. Look back, says God. Find some evidence that it's not like this. There isn't any. It's it's a mess. That normally kills human relationships. That's a situation where it's kind of irretrievable. That's normally the death knell of a relationship. But no, again, God refuses to let this be the end of the matter. Suddenly, in chapter 44, again, we hear these loud, profound words, but now, but now, listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen, this is what the Lord says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, 
Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Mixed up those words, but you get the point. God is just going to intervene to turn things around. He simply will not let Israel's indifference and rejection be the last word. But now, he says, out of the blue, out of nothing. We cannot stop God being the gracious God. Not by our sin, not by our indifference, our rebellion. Nothing we can do, nothing we can say, no refusal of ours is strong enough to break his will to be gracious. He will be the gracious God. And there is nothing we can do to stuff that up. And that's what we see at its highest in Jesus. The perfect, unshakable determination of God to be the gracious God. He did it with no encouragement or help from us at all. Jesus got no help in the end. He came to his own people. They rejected him. He called the disciples. They all left him in the end. He was not honored or worshipped or welcomed or wanted. And yet still the grace of God won through against all that indifference and hatred and foolishness All those things piled up their obstacles and still God said, but now. That is his final word to his creation. It is a word of yes and not no. But now there will be life. Thank God. That is good news, isn't it? We cannot stop God from being the gracious God. You cannot stop him. Not with your big sins or your small ones. Your grandstanding, fist-pumping rejection, nor your quiet, creeping cynicism. Nor can the church stop God from being the gracious God. However hopeless we are, however petty and hypocritical, however full of ugly evil and politics and preoccupation with small matters, however disorganized and chaotic and foolish. The grace of God was not defeated by Israel. It will not be defeated by us. No matter what we put against him, still God's final word, the last word, is, but now, life. Can I just invite you this evening to fall into that? and be at peace. That's the first thing I think we're reminded of in this passage. Don't worry, it was the longest. The second thing is this. We cannot control the grace of God. We cannot stop it, nor can we control it. We cannot control the grace of God in the sense that we do not set the terms of it. 
It is utterly and completely out of our hands. We see this most powerfully in the way God's mercy to Israel is sovereign and free, radically free. Why does God turn things around for Israel? Why does he save Israel? Is it because they're sorry and repent? No, they aren't sorry and they don't repent. Despite what happened to them, as we read, still they don't understand and take it to heart. Okay, so is it because of Israel's history with God? He remembers good things, the journey they've taken together. Again, no. Remember God saying, look back at the past. Show me something worth fighting for. There's nothing there. That's not why God is gracious. Is it then because Israel is especially beautiful or noble? No, they are a wreck. Why then? Why does God save them? Simply because in the freedom of his sovereign choice, he loves them. Chapter 43, verse 4, Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Why does God save Israel? just because he has chosen them, because he loves them, just because he wants to. He saves them utterly freely in perfect sovereignty because they are his ones. God's grace is utterly free and therefore utterly out of our control. We cannot earn it. We do not deserve it. It is sheer gift. And that means we do not control it. God does not ask us how his grace should proceed, how it should work out. He does not consult us to see whether his plans meet our approval. No, it is something he does apart from us. That's why the Bible teaches that God chooses those whom he saves. Because it is what goes with the fact that God's grace is sheer gift. It is not in our hands. It is not in our control, but in his. The reason that God saves you does not lie in you or me, but in him. Look at chapter 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. He saves us simply because he does. Brother, sister, God does not save you because you are sorry enough or repent enough or because of your history or because you are beautiful. He saves you simply because he just does love you. Because from before the foundation of the world, his love for his son, Jesus, has encompassed you, since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. Now, you may well find this a bit troubling. Why does he love like this? Does this apply to others? You know, I can't resolve all these questions. Somebody might ask a question about it later. I'll give a kind of half answer. 
because it is troubling. We just don't know all the answers here. We don't know about everyone else, certainly. We don't know why he loves us. Because it is simply not our responsibility. And we are not in any position to argue about it. Isaiah, in in the next chapter, is going to ask, does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Why are you doing it like this? No, it doesn't. Israel is called just to accept the fact that through no merits of their own, they simply are the objects of God's affection. We are called to accept that too. For he blots out our transgressions simply for his own sake. To those who he calls to faith in his son Jesus Christ, He says, I have chosen you because I loved you. For his own reasons, in the sovereign freedom of his being God, he acts to save and no one can reverse it. It is a terrifying, sovereign, free mercy. But also deeply comforting if we will rest in it. Because it means it really, really really does not depend on us, but on him. We do not have to earn his love, merit it, be worthy of it, live up to it. We can't be smart enough, good enough, rich enough, pretty enough, religious enough. It is just not in our hands. And if you're worried about whether you're included in it, You have the evidence that you already are. His love is his gift and it is given. All we bring is open hands in faith. The Apostle Paul knew all this and and summed it up perfectly when he said, By grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Hallelujah. And that leads us to the final thing I want us to see in this text today. What we are called to do in response is to stand and watch and bear witness. Have a look at me at chapter 43 from verse 8. See, when God intervenes, Israel is called to bear witness. And finally, Israel, things turn around for Israel. Finally, the servant is able to be the witness. Verse 8, lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say, it is true, the scene here is like a courtroom. And God is saying, bring them in. Let them produce witnesses to show that they foresaw this. And then he produces his own witnesses. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after. Finally now, Israel will understand. Finally now they can begin to be God's witnesses because they come to grasp that the one who has saved them is the only one 
to depend on, the only one worthy of trust, they will know that he is God. That I am he. Did you see that odd Hebrew, that that odd English phrase? It's, It's equally odd in the Hebrew. There's no kind of weird translation thing there. It's a phrase that's meant to pull you up a little bit. Israel is meant to stop and realize that this is God. There is no other reality behind this one. This is, this is bedrock. Verse 11 drills down into this even further. God says, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, of what? That I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Israel will finally bear witness when God acts in a way that is totally unexpected, but utterly undeniable to save them. They will finally see that this is God, and not just God, but the one and true God, the one who just is, the one who can say, I am it. He is the primal and ultimate reality of this world. His action is utterly unstoppable, non-negotiable. And again, we see the same dynamic at the end of our passage in chapter 44. When God says, but now I'm going to save you anyway. Look at what happens at the end. And this is really where I want to finish. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, God says, and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hands the Lord's and will take the name Israel. I love this image. Somebody said to me earlier today, it's almost like youth group kids kind of doing tattoos on their arms or getting bracelets. There is a wonderful sense of just joyful innocence here. Where before there has been indifference and rejection and bitterness, now there is joy. I belong to the Lord. People gladly, joyfully declaring their allegiance to this wonderful one who has saved them. And you know, friends, that's what we're called to as well. That's what ought to start to spring up in us when we see what God has done in Christ. For we too are witnesses to the way God has shown himself, made himself known, blown open everything through the sheer reality of his presence. That's what he's done in Jesus. Jesus came as the one sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. He came calling himself, I am. Did you see that in the reading from John? He does it over and over again. He knew what he was doing. He was saying, here, here, right here in me is the presence the ultimate, the presence of the ultimate reality of the universe. A rock that will ultimately determine everything else. 
right here. He came refusing our politics and power plays, our attempts to make him what we wanted. He came with the courage to offend us and shake us up and wake us up. He came with the burning hot love of God for his beloved that lays down its life for its sake. He came to reveal and to save and to proclaim and to show himself the living and true God. That's what we see above all in Jesus, the overwhelming reality of the living God bursting into this world and into our lives as the defining and final truth. So let us praise him and joyfully bear witness and never be ashamed to say, I belong to him. I belong to him. Let's, let's write it on our hands. In that spirit, let me finish with the final words of our passage in Isaiah. A sense of completeness for me to actually get to the end of the text, but it's also, it's exactly right, these last words. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Those are words too that will be said of Jesus. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Anyone? Anyone? Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No. There is no other rock. I know not one. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.